Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the top political stories of the day. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, we've got a roundtable discussion featuring some of our regular guests to preview the elections kicking off in just a few short weeks. Here to help me to highlight some of what we're watching here at Ballotpedia are Corey Ucolito. Hey, Corey. Hey. Doug Kronizel. Hi, Victoria. And Joe Greeny. Hi. What's up, guys? Great to have everyone together. The last time we kind of did one of these roundtable discussions was when we were all together in person in Chicago. So we're going to try to have as much fun as we did then and keep it pretty informal um, and just go over some of the elections we're watching. But first, I figured it'd be helpful for our listeners to kind of know what each of you cover in your day to day. So I'll start with the highest ranking member, Corey. I don't know. Highest ranking. That's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah, so I'm managing editor of uh, our team that covers, does most of our like in-depth elections reporting and analysis, as, as long as it doesn't relate to ballot measures. Um, so my team does in-depth election coverage, covers the presidential election, election policy, election laws and legislation, which show does a bit of work on. So I really just kind of run the gamut. Um, a lot of our newsletters, whenever we're doing um, more in-depth writing and analysis, it's usually coming. Awesome. And how about... How about you, Doug? Yeah, so I'm a member of that team as a staff writer and, you know, kind of the very particular things I've been focusing on recently as listeners of the show are well, well aware of at this point is school board elections, digging into all all of these different elections happening around the country, comprehensive school board elections. So a lot of focus on those analyses, but like Corey said, just kind of additional election analyses, election coverage, uh, when when those kinds of topics come up and need a little bit of a deeper dive into them for the readers. And how about you, Joe? We got a bit of a theme going here, but yeah, I'm also on Corey's team. I'm a staff writer covering uh, mostly election laws and legislation, election policy. In the last couple of months, I've had the opportunity to start covering a couple elections on my own on site, which has been a super fun experience as well. So yeah, just generally looking at how election policy and election administration is developing, changing, evolving around the country. Awesome. Well, let's jump into these elections. Ballotpedia's editorial team uh, compiled a list of 15 elections we're watching this November based on past election results, unique election-specific circumstances, and election race ratings. We're going to run through most of those elections now, but if listeners want some extra context, they can check out the complete list at the link in our show notes. So three states are slated to hold elections for governor this fall, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Mississippi. In Louisiana, Jeff Landry, a Republican, was elected governor on October 14th after winning the primary outright with more than 50% of the vote. Kentucky and Mississippi will elect governors on November 7th. So let's start with Kentucky. What's the story for incumbent Democratic Governor Andy Bashir's re-election campaign? Yeah, I think it's a super interesting race. And I think the background is super important, Victoria, as well, that you just hit on with Governor-elect Landry in Louisiana. Uh, we'll see parts and control of governorships around the country move from 26 Republican to 24 Democrat to 27 Republican to 23 Democratic. Governor Bashir is sort of facing a uh, not tough, but a very competitive reelection campaign against Kentucky's Attorney General Daniel Cameron. Bashir is currently one of, with Governor Bell Edwards in Louisiana, um, moving out of the governorship. We'll be down to uh, three, I think it is, Democratic governors in states that voted for Donald Trump in the last presidential election. So Bashir's sort of trying to hold on to a governorship that's really in play for the Republican Party. 
And yeah, the polling is, is tight right now. I will say that the thing that I feel like I always see come out of Kentucky, though, is is people basically saying some variation of like, don't sleep on the Bashirs. Like, you know, like they tend to do pretty. I mean, this is now Andy Bashir has won two statewide elections in Kentucky. Uh, he was elected attorney general and he served a term there before he ran for governor and actually defeated an incumbent governor when he when he won. But again, like you said, Joe, like tight tight margins, I think like within a percentage point or something like that for that 2019 election. And then his father, Steve Bashir, was governor of Kentucky as well, um, you know, earlier, I think in like 2000s or in, in that span of time as well. So they've got a they've got a history there in Kentucky for sure. Yeah, 2019 was 49.2% to 48.8. So 0.4% close. Yeah. difference. Yeah. And Bashir's raising lots of money too. Um, through October 11th, he's raised $16.5 million. Um, and Daniel Cameron, his opponent, has raised about $3.4 million. So really, really big difference there. And are there any themes that are sticking out to you in the race that they're touching on? I think this is a great... Well, governor's races have always been a little bit more tuned into national issues than uh, more local state elections, um, state legislative races, for example. Um, but this race in particular, I think, is a great example of how national talking points and national debates around specific issues are really salient at the state and local level right now. This campaign sort of centered around a, a couple broad issues, but abortion is one that we're seeing come up all around the country right now. Education policy, school vouchers has been a big issue in this election, in this campaign, excuse me. And then even things like January 6th um, and sort of where candidates stand on the aftermath of January 6th. Um, so yeah, d- definitely a lot of national themes coming up in this this race. And is that the case also in, in Mississippi? Um, we have incumbent Republican Tate Reeves running for re-election. What does that race look like? I, I will say that I, I haven't been following this one super closely, but I do know that his opponent, Brandon Presley, who's I think a current public service commissioner or public utilities commissioner or something like that is Elvis Presley's second cousin. Oh, wow. So that's, that's my my one takeaway take from this race. And I think the race rating just changed recently. Someone updated their race rating there from likely to lean Republican in that. So kind of tilting a little bit more towards a competitive setup. But I can't really speak to anything beyond, beyond those two points. But they're cool points. That is a fun fact. And I think to your point, Doug, like with the, with the race rating change, this is a – a race that's maybe snuck up on some people as competitive. Mississippi is not necessarily a state that you think of as um, competitive at the statewide level, at least in the last decade plus. So yeah, it's interesting to see the the polling margins get tighter uh, as we get closer to election day. I think this, again, similar to you, Doug, I've not been following this race as closely as some other race. And I think for the, that same reason, is it's, it's kind of gotten competitive more recently. Um, but from what I do know, I think this is actually a little bit of a counterpoint to the Kentucky example we were just talking about, where it's it's a little bit more on Mississippi issues and comes down to popularity of Reeves in the state. Is he popular enough to win re-election and name recognition of Presley? Does he have enough of a, a bona fide resume in the state um, to actually go head-to-head against Reeves? So, yeah, I'm definitely interested to see what will happen. 2019 wasn't – Reeves won the 52% of the vote. Um, yeah, it wasn't a blowout by any means. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely not. Um, the polls right now, Reeps is ahead. There, uh, there's obviously margin of error 
one issue I know that that has come up is this. Folks might have heard about it because of the Brett Favre story. Um, I think it's all tied together. Totally correct me if I'm wrong, but there's this story about like the the welfare scandal um, and the Department of Human Services misspending seventy seven million dollars in welfare funds. Um, and so the the candidate responses to that. I don't really remember how Brett Favre is involved. I just think he was involved somehow. Um, but that that's come up. It was the volleyball uh, arena, or yeah, he was at. He was sort of playing a little pressure game behind the scenes. For anyways, this is all. These are allegations. We should say. But yeah, uh, it's definitely been an issue in the campaign. Very interesting. Let's move on to the congressional level. We have two special elections we are watching for the U.S. House, uh, one in Rhode Island's first congressional district, and the second one is in Utah's second congressional district. In Rhode Island, the special election will fill a vacancy left by Democrat David Cicilline, who resigned on May 31st to run the Rhode Island Foundation. So who is running to fill his seat? The two candidates there are Gabe Amo and uh, Jerry Leonard. Honestly, both of both of these um, are important vacancies given the closeness of the House. But this race and then the one in Utah are thought to be pretty safe for the Democrats in Rhode Island um, and and Republicans in Utah. So it was really the primaries in these um, that stood out. There was a, a really big field of, I mean, more than 10 candidates in the Democratic primary here. And the winner came out with 32.5% of the vote. So it was spread pretty evenly across a bunch of candidates. But it, it's generally thought to be and has historically been a fairly safe seat for Democrats. Yeah, and then like like you mentioned, very similar in in Utah's second congressional district, where uh, Chris Stewart resigned earlier this year, creating a, a vacancy there. That primary was what we were really focused. On. They had a primary on September fifteenth with three Republicans running: Celeste Malloy, who was uh, Stewart's counsel in his DC office. Um, she ended up winning that primary, and she's going up against. I think the Senate Minority Leader or Senate Minority Whip, Kathleen Reby, used to be on the State Board of Education in Utah. But I think Stewart won like 60% of the vote or something like that in 2022. So, you know, it's it would be a very big surprise if a Democrat were to overcome that and end up flipping that seat. To your, to your point, Doug, as well, you brought up Celeste Malloy's background, working as counsel for, for Rep Stewart previously in D.C., I'm always fascinated, especially in Congress, by sort of candidate backgrounds. Where do they come from? What's been their experience? Are they sort of lifelong? Have they been in politics for a long time? Are they coming from some other field? I just think it's interesting that we have two completely different districts here, a pretty safe Democratic district in the Northeast, a pretty safe Republican district in the Mountain West, um, and, and both candidates that are likely to win, Amo in Rhode Island and Malloy in Utah, have extensive D.C. experience. So um, I don't really have a, a deeper analysis on that. I just think it's an interesting sort of fact that ties these races together a bit. Now let's return our attention back to the states. Um, we're having we're covering state legislative elections in Virginia, New Jersey, Louisiana, and Mississippi this year. Um, let's start with Virginia, which is the most competitive state that we're covering. How competitive are the races in the Virginia House? I, I, before we kind of like jump into the the competitive nature of these elections and kind of what's at stake there, one of the, like the first things that we noticed with Virginia, especially the House, that really caught our attention was the number of open seats this year. It, it's like it's like a third of like one in three seats are are open or something something along those lines. Yeah, it's thirty two um, seats. Yeah, out of like a hundred seats in the chamber. So yeah, like like 
basically one third of the entire chamber is going to be new next year. And that's not even counting people who lost in primaries, incumbents who might lose in the general election. So that that's always something that kind of I like to keep an eye on because even if the chamber doesn't change its control, like even if one party retains control of that chamber in the next election, um, it's still going to look different. You're going to have a bunch of new people there who weren't there before, and that's going to change things up and down sort of how that chamber functions when it comes time to reconvene for the next legislative session. Yeah, and with those open seats, too, it was, it was pretty split. It wasn't like there was a big exodus from one party or another. Um, it was um, 17 Democrats and 15 Republicans of the folks who didn't run for re-election, and then um, one incumbent, one Republican incumbent lost in a primary. So 17 Democrats and 16 Republicans, you know, who are, who are in there now won't be there. Yeah, that's a high level of turnover for sure. As a quick like primer for our listeners, what is the partisan breakdown of the chambers right now? Um, yeah, I can handle that. And also just back to the, the vacancies point, and I'll, I'll try and tie these things together. This is with the odd year elections and weird timing of redistricting because of delays caused by COVID and other factors. These are the the first state legislative elections in Virginia with new maps after the second census. So that's that's definitely a big factor in the amount of turnover. Just districts look way different for incumbents. The calculus on whether or not you'd like to run in that, in that new district is going to look a lot different. So that's definitely a, a major factor in the amount of vacancies. And then on the Senate side as well, I think there's 10 vacancies and it's a pretty small chamber as well. So that's a significant portion of that chamber. In the House, Republicans currently um, control the House of Delegates with a 52 to 48 majority. So that's tight. Um, and they flipped control of that chamber in 2021. So they're, they're trying to hold on to the chamber just two years later. And obviously, again, back to the point, there's there's sort of 32 incumbents that, that didn't run for re-election. The margin's four seats. Sort of anything could happen here. And then I don't know, Doug or Corey, if you want to speak to this as well. Well, yeah. I mean, the the House, like you mentioned, the House changed in 2021. And I think it actually changed in 2019 as well, or, or something, something along those lines. Like it's, it's definitely been like a very back and forth thing where Republicans had control of the House of Delegates for a big chunk of time until Democrats created a trifecta. Actually, they had a trifecta there for a period of time going into the 2021 election. But then with 2021, they elected Glenn Youngkin, Republican governor. Uh, the House switched back to Republican control. So now we got a divided government there. It's actually one of, I think it's just two. There's two states now where the single, like the legislature, different parties control both chambers. I think it's them in Pennsylvania. Um, Virginia and Pennsylvania are the only two where you've got Republicans. Yeah, because wasn't Michigan or Minnesota? One of Michigan. Yeah, Minnesota. Michigan. Yeah, Minnesota had the Senate Republicans and the House Democrats, and they then are now a Democratic trifecta too. So, yeah, the House is really well. And, and another thing that's important to know is that, like we're saying, the House is up for election every two years, whereas the Senate, which Democrats control and have controlled since 2019, that's up every four years. And so, we haven't really had a chance to check in on how the Senate is doing since the 2019 change that happened. I do know that earlier this year, Democrats actually increased their control of in the chamber by winning a special state legislative election. So a Republican had previously held the Senate seat. I think she was elected to Congress. They had a special election and a Democrat won that. So they actually are going into the November elections with a little bit bigger majority than they had 
even at the start of the year. But yeah, definitely a lot at stake here because obviously if if Democrats uh, win the Senate, that will last until 2027. If they win the House, that will last until 2025, at which point the governor will be up for election again. And how do the race rating uh, agencies have this rated right now? Do you all know? Yeah. Well, I have, we, we can talk about maybe our battleground districts. Yeah. And, and, uh, Corey Ordug, please correct me if I'm wrong, but like I was sort of starting to say earlier, a colleague of ours, I think it was Mercedes has really done the close coverage on this race. We're sort of relying a bit, um, on analysis from one of our colleagues, but it's, it's eminently solid. We can attest to that. Um, but yeah, in the house, uh, we've identified Valpedia has identified seven, uh, battleground races within the election. And of those three are rated and all these ratings are from the rating agency CN- C analysis. I think I'm saying that correctly. If not, it's CN analysis. Who, who we've had yeah, on the Chaz show before. Chaz Nettycomb. Yeah. Love that. So of those seven uh, identified battleground districts, three are currently rated as toss up. Two are lean or tilt Democratic and two are likely or lean Republican. Um, so I think again that just I mean, these are battle these are identified battleground districts for a reason, but that just speaks to sort of I think the narrow margins here, and it really could go either direction. And then on the Senate side, quickly as well, just because I have these numbers pulled up right in front of me, there's eight identified battleground districts on the Senate side. Four of those are tilt or likely Democratic. One is a toss up, and three are tilt or likely Republican. So same thing; it's going to be tight um, in both chambers. And, and I mean, one one piece of the analysis that that Mercedes put together was looking at major party competition in these chambers. So the elections where you've got a Democrat and a Republican running against each other, and actually Democrats, I think that they've got thirty three seats in the House, just have a Democrat on the ballot. So Democrats have thirty three basically guaranteed seats that they're going to win. Republicans have thirteen in the House, so that's kind of like their baseline that then they're trying to add on to to get that 51 that you need for the majority. In the in the Senate, things are a little bit more contested. You had six seats where you only have a Democrat running and two seats where you only have a Republican running. So more more at stake there, but definitely a lot of room. But I think like what you're saying, Joe, it really does come down to just a handful of like pretty swing districts or you know, kind of very, you know, maybe they voted for Biden in 2020, and then they voted for Glenn Youngkin in 2021. You know, those types of districts are the ones I think people are really focusing on. Let's move to the local level now. We're covering 40 mayoral elections in 2023, including 18 that will be up for election on November 7th. These elections include all mayoral elections in the 100 largest U.S. cities by population and all mayoral elections in state capitals. Our staff identified the race between incumbent Brandon Whipple and former reporter Lily Wu to become the next mayor of Wichita, Kansas, as one of the most interesting. So why is that? So Whipple won in 2019 as these are this is officially a nonpartisan race, like a lot of local races are. But we tally the partisan balance of the mayors of the 100 largest cities based on if they've run for other offices, if they're registered as a Republican or Democrat, whatever it might be. Um, Just, you know, they don't have R.E.D. next to their name on the ballot, but they're still affiliated with the political party. So Whipple is a Democrat. Wu is actually a, she used to be a Republican. Now she's a libertarian, which is interesting. Um, and so Whipple is a, a Democrat. He defeated a Republican incumbent to get it's nonpartisan, but Republican affiliated incumbent 
in 2019. And so what's interesting here is that most historically and today, most of the 100 largest cities in America are, their mayors are, are Democrats. Democrats right now hold 63 of the top 100 largest city mayorships, Republicans 25, independents four, six nonpartisans, and then two were kind of up in the air about. So Republican or Democrats have pretty much dominated uh, big city mayor's offices. So that's always an interesting question when, when one could possibly flip to a Republican, or in this case, uh, a currently registered libertarian, which would certainly be interesting. So yeah, I don't know if you guys have looked too much into that beyond that. The thing that really kind of stands out to me with with Wichita is the data point that we came across with regards to turnout versus the primary and the general election. So Wichita has like a, a historic streak of people being far more likely to vote in the general election than in the primary election, which is the case across the board in, in every election type. But in 2019, they had more than double the ballots cast in the general election versus the primary. And that was pretty similar in 20, 2015. It was almost double. So, you know, that leads like a lot of like uncertainty. And then add to the fact that with the primary that happened last August, Wu actually received the most votes in the primary, followed by Whipple. But still, those two together only accounted for 54% of the of the vote. 46% of everyone else who voted in the primary voted for someone who wasn't Lily Wu or Brandon Whipple. And so you've got that kind of uncertainty of like, well, where are those votes going though? And then you got the uncertainty of like, oh, and also a lot more people are going to be voting in the general election than what we saw in the primary. So that definitely makes it makes it more of like a exciting with what the outcome is. That's really interesting for like an odd year off cycle uh, local election for sure. We're going to turn our attention now to a Supreme Court race in Pennsylvania. Democratic Justice Max Baer died on September 30th, 2022. And as a result, the court went from a 5-2 Democratic majority to a 4-2 Democratic majority. So who is running to replace him? Yeah, you've got up there, I think this is the second. Yeah, there were two state Supreme Court elections this year. The first was over in Wisconsin earlier in the year, which I know we talked about here uh, with, with that election. And now we've got this in Pennsylvania. You've got um, Daniel McCaffrey is a Democrat and um, Carolyn Carluccio is the Republican candidate. And and Pennsylvania, we're not we're not just hypothesizing what their affiliations are. Pennsylvania Supreme Court elections are, are partisan elections. So you run in a partisan primary, you get a partisan nomination, and you'll appear on the ballot as a Democrat or a Republican. So yeah, those are the two candidates who are running. Like you mentioned, the Court went from a five, what was that? Five, five two. two to four two. So there's no chance to change the majority here. If Republican, if if Carluccio wins, it'll be a four three Democratic majority still. If McCaffrey wins, it'll go back to a five two Democratic majority. But it really sets things up for what's going to be happening in 2025 when you have three Democratic members whose terms will be expiring. And so they'll either have to be up for retention votes or, you know, retire, whatever it is that they decide to do. So whatever happens now in this election will either make it more possible or, or less possible or, or like a harder, depending on like who you're rooting for, which side you're rooting for um, when, when 2025 rolls around. And the Democrats won their majority only in 2015. So in 2015, they switched from, I think, uh, a 4-3 Republican majority to a 5-2 Democratic majority. So similarly there, there's been you know shifts and changes over the last couple of years. Yeah. So if, if any of those 
three justices up for retention in 2025. So those are all Democrats. Any of them are not retained, which judges are retention rates are high. I can't remember the exact number. If any of them are not retained, the governor appoints an interim successor, but that's subject to approval by the state Senate. And so Pennsylvania now has a Democratic governor, but a Republican state Senate. So the Republican state Senate is going to have to to back Josh Shapiro's possible interim nomination if anything were to happen in those 2025 retention elections. And I was just going to chime in and say, yeah, totally agree with you, Doug. This is definitely a setup election of sorts for, for 2025. And I just like, I love the idea of a setup election because in a sense, every election is a setup election. It's setting, you know, what's going to happen in two years. Kind of, You might find out a little bit about in this election, you might have to wait, but this is definitely one where like the real change is possible in 25. And this is sort of an unexpected vacancy um, due to the death of the, the former justice. Uh, so it gives us an interesting opportunity to just sort of gauge, um, you know, where Pennsylvania is at. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of attention on um, state Supreme Court elections right now as well, uh, as we saw with Wisconsin earlier this year. So, and then maybe I can just drop in a little bit. I've got it right here in front of me about each of the candidates. They're both currently judges in the state of Pennsylvania. McCaffrey, the Democrat, is a uh, Pennsylvania Superior Court judge uh, who was first elected in 2019. And was a former assistant DA in Philadelphia. Uh, and Carluccio is uh, the, a judge on Montgomery County Court Common Pleas and has been so since 2019 as well. Or excuse me, since 2010. And then finally, we're going to touch on Doug's favorite subject, uh, school board elections. We're a big fan of school board elections over here, as you probably know. This year, we're covering school board elections in 16 states, including all school board races in seven of them, Colorado, Kansas, Minnesota, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Washington. There were a handful we highlighted as being particularly exciting, but I'll let you all share which ones you want to chat about. Oh, man. This, the, the choices are endless. There's there's so much to talk about. I, I think the, the two elections that, that we're focusing on that I've found to be some of the most interesting are the ones in Pennsylvania. And Joe, I think you wrote about one of them, so you can probably speak to a little bit more, but it's in Penridge and Central Bucks. So these are both school boards. Central Bucks comes up, all, like when we first started covering elections in 2021, like really closely school board elections in this manner, like what are the things that people are talking about? Central Bucks was one of the ones that was always showing up in the news alerts and it's back. And now we're covering it really closely, which is which is really cool because there's just a lot involved. I mean, I think both of these districts are located in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And, and Bucks County is just north of Philadelphia. It's a suburban, you know, suburb county. Uh, it's kind of seen that trend towards Democrats at overall countywide over the last few presidential elections. But these districts in particular, I know like in Bucks County, Republicans, registered Republicans outnumber registered Democrats slightly, which is a flip from the county overall. So it's just like microcosms within microcosms within microcosms. Um, and then talking about some really interesting topics going on. But Joe, if you, yeah, if you got anything to say about Penridge, that, that one's also been uh, a trip. Similar to Box as well. And to your point, Doug, I really think that these districts are sort of a microcosm of larger conversations around education policy and school board politics that we've seen going, we've seen sort of develop and um, come to a new place in the last couple of years. Penridge is just to give an example of one of these districts. I'll talk a little bit about uh, Penridge in particular right now. It's a board that has an eight one 
uh, Republican majority. So a lot of states, school board members are nonpartisan. Pennsylvania, they are um, elected on a partisan manner, except for Philadelphia. I might be wrong about that, actually. But I know in Philadelphia, they're appointed. Uh, I think they're just appointed. Yeah. 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 And Penridge saw at the last school board election, saw a slate of five Republicans um, win, which actually took the school board. So it's a nine-member school board. Every other election, five or four members are elected. So it's on an alternating election cycle. During the last election, a slate of five Republicans won, which took the board majority to a 9-0 Republican control. We've actually seen one of the Republican members of the board change his registration since then. So it's actually an eight one Republican majority right now. Anyways, I could I could get into some some details here, but we've got a, a slate of five Republicans running against a slate of five Democrats. A lot of the issues are some of the stuff that we're hearing about elsewhere. Book bans or just book moderation, advocacy policies in the district, curriculum decisions taken by the board. Well I think yeah, one of the interesting things with your coverage is that y- you've really focused on like how the board voted on some of these topics that you're just talking about, like adopting new curriculum standards. And what's interesting about that is that, yeah, you've got eight Republicans and one Democrat on the board, but it's not like the board is always voting eight, one on everything. Like with those curriculum standards, that got like a lot of attention when they were being adopted. It ended up a five, four vote where you had you know, I think three Republicans and one Democrat who are voting against adopting the new standards and five Republicans voting in favor of the new standards. So like you've got this partisan majority on the board, but then there's like these very issue based ideological majorities that is definitely a little bit narrower than the overall DR numbers. Yeah. Um, it's been super fascinating. There were two inc- two Republican incumbents that chose not to run for re-election um, as well. And in my mind, Doug, it's it's sort of related to to that pattern as well. Where again, there's a, on paper there's a clear partisan majority on the board, but there's a lot of division within the board um, on a lot of these decisions. There's been a lot of pushback from community members and a lot of support from community members as well for some of the decisions the board's taken. So um, it's, it'll be really fascinating to see how this one breaks. And yeah, again, I think it's it's microcosm is the word for it. I know another one that we're focusing on is the mentor school district in Ohio is one that we're we're diving into. I'm not entirely well versed in the exact ins and outs of this race, but one of the things that's really interesting here is who's endorsing. So as listeners know, we like to track who's making endorsements in school board elections also. And in the mentor school district, you actually had the incumbent secretary of state, Frank LaRose, made endorsements uh, and including some candidates in that race. And the reason that stands out to me is because that's something that we, we've we been tracking at Ballopedia is whenever state executive officials endorse candidates uh, for school board elections. We started tracking it last year when... Um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis endorsed a slate of candidates in Florida, and then his opponent, Charlie Crist, also endorsed a slate of candidates. And that stood out to us because usually when someone gets an endorsement, it's kind of up to them to let people know they got the endorsement. But when DeSantis endorsed those candidates, you know, he was letting people know who he was endorsing and kind of making like a media event out of I'm endorsing these candidates, which is not something that we've seen very often. And now this go around, I'd say Frank LaRose is probably the highest profile 
executive who's doing something similar to that in this November, these elections coming up in November with endorsing members running for school boards all over the state. So definitely, definitely an interesting trend that we're still tracking and keeping an eye on as as we kind of progress forward through these election cycles. On LaRose as well, if I'm remembering correctly, he's um, announced that he's going to be challenging Sherrod Brown for a Senate seat in Ohio as well. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think you're kind of like, you can kind of use it in your campaign, you know, strategy. You, you kind of, you get to make, make an event out of this thing that you're doing. And it probably, I haven't looked at his platform for, for Senate, but I'm sure he has something to do with education in there. And, you know, this is like a, a way to kind of get people thinking about that and talking about that. Speaking of Senate race... U.S. Senate race. Um, let's talk about the future. 2024 is just around the corner. Are there any uh, storylines or elections you are particularly excited about covering next year? Well, there's a big one on the ballot. The, the big one, some say. I don't know. I feel like <laughs> the presidential race obviously takes up so much oxygen in presidential election years. And this year in particular, it feels like both sides feel like I should say there are more than just two sides, but both sides, meaning the two major political parties, I feel like both parties are really building this next presidential election up as a sort of make or break election. And yeah, that that sort of happens every four years. But yeah, we'll see what happens. And then obviously, I think with what's going on in Congress right now, I'm not exactly sure when this podcast will be released, but we still currently do not have a Speaker of the House. I'm really fascinated to see if that, that ends up uh, hurting Republicans' election prospects, members of the House in particular, come next year um, when the entire chamber is up for election, or if this is just because this situation is sort of unprecedented in the history of, of the U.S. Congress, I'm just interested to see if there's any sort of electoral fallout for that, or if this is something that that voters are just going to sort of assign as a part of business in the chamber and, and not really think about it. So that's just something I'm I'm interested in next year. Well, speaking about the House, I'm also interested to see how all this mid mid cycle redistricting, like the the effects that that has. You know, we've we've seen maps change in Alabama, North Carolina, you know, New York. Uh, I don't think they've changed their maps, but I feel like it's in the legal pipeline somewhere. So, like, you've got these lines that are changing. So we held these elections in 2022, and people got elected, and now it's 2024. And all of a sudden, the districts look different, which is something that we're used to seeing after redistricting. But it's just interesting to have that happening potentially in so many places once again, uh, you know, another election cycle in a row. And just kind of, yeah, in general, I, I feel like the calculus as far as like competitive house districts go has gotten down to the point where once again, there's like a handful of districts that people are really focused on and those are the ones that kind of make or break a majority. So yeah, be interesting to see what what effect redistricting has has on that. How about you, Corey? Oh, I'm just looking forward to presidential. Our coverage has been in like full swing for most of this year now, um, and it's going to continue. And we have a, a ton of really great resources and people who work very hard on it. So yeah, definitely lots of unprecedented things happening. Uh, well, thank you all for your time and your expertise and coming on the show this this week. Thank most you, Victoria. Thank you for thank having you. us. And for our listeners, you can learn more about all of these races and more by checking out the links in our show notes. We'll be back next week with another episode, but make sure you subscribe to On the Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening.